This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 37, verses 2 through 11. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it, bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Thanks, Dana. Uh, I I know enough about Matt to know that he might have chosen to do this on purpose, and I know enough about the providence of God to know that he certainly did. But but we sang a song, isn't it good? And then the the next song we sang, the the opening lines. So this is going to come out a little bit later in the sermon. This this is bonus content, though. Uh, so here's the thing. How can you sing it is isn't he good when there is so much pain and suffering and and I think this is part of what Matt was getting at too when he was sharing with us how can you sing it is good if you've lost a child or if someone you love isn't trusting in Jesus or maybe you've gone through a, a really horrific circumstance and or are going through one and the answer was in the very next song that we sang that we need the grace of God to tune our hearts to sing his grace. Well, what does that mean? What it means is there are promises of God that tell us about how we are as Christians to understand suffering and difficulty in this world, namely that God is using even that for his glory and our good. And so we're going to see that. One of the most important lines in all of Genesis comes at the end of the story of Joseph that we're about to start today, where he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That's an awesome reality. And it's only when we know the promises of God and by the grace of God have our hearts tuned to them in our trials that we can, like James says, consider them all joy, knowing that they're producing in us what we need more than comfort. That's pretty awesome, right, Grace? And so, again, I don't know if you picked Isn't He Good first and then tune our hearts to sing your praise right after that or to sing your grace, but but that's exactly what we need. We need him to tune our hearts so that we can, even in the midst of trials, declare the goodness of God. 
So, so with that, here we go. Final section of Genesis. It's hard to believe. I mean, it's sort of a long section. It goes all the way from 37 to 50, but this is the final section of Genesis. It's the story. We'll see in a minute that it's, it's the, the generations of Jacob, but it's really the story of his youngest son, Joseph. It's a, another fascinating recap of the life of another son in the line of Abraham. This one is interesting for several reasons. Uh, perhaps a chief among them is that it poses for us a familiar question. One of the questions that has happened with each subsequent generation after Abraham is which of the child of the chosen son would become the chosen son? And so with Abraham's children, Isaac and Ishmael, the question was quickly answered. So too was it with Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob. In both cases, the younger child, by God's command and design, uh, would receive the promises. Well, Jacob chose two wives, and that made things a little more complicated. Would the child of the promise come from Jacob's first wife, Leah, or his second and favorite, Rachel? And then, which of the children from among which of the wives would this child come? As we'll see, God did choose Joseph to accomplish much for his people. So the the fact that the rest of Genesis is about Joseph and what God did through him, that's pretty awesome. But as we sang in the first song, which I'm sure Matt planned, uh, one of the first lines was the Lion of Judah. It it wasn't going to be through Joseph that the Messiah would come, but through Judah. Not, not through the favorite wife, Rachel's offspring, but through Leah's. That's pretty awesome as well. So again, we don't, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, though. And So to come back to this passage, it begins with the 10th. If you remember the word, it's a fancy word. It means generations of, and it's a Hebrew word that means generations of, toledot. I don't even know for sure that I'm saying it rightly. Um, T-O-L-E-D-O-T with a really cool uh, accent above the O. So Toledot, it means the generations of. And it's the generations of Jacob. And again, in particular, it's the story of one one specific son of Jacob, 17-year-old shepherd boy named Joseph. In this passage, we, we get a bunch. He's the reporter of evil, the singled-out favorite child of his father, the best-dressed among them hated by his jealous brothers, and a dreamer of divine dreams. This passage in these ways serves as an introduction to the rest of Genesis. What do I mean by that? It is precisely those things that we get in just a few verses. The favoritism, the jealousy, and the dreams. Those three things carry through and dominate the rest of Genesis. And so here we get introduced to the, to the main themes that carry on. The main thing for us to see this morning is this. God's plan of rescue, remember, Adam and Eve sinned and in them all died. God promised almost immediately after, right away in Genesis 3, after, cur- after the curse, that he would send a rescue. You've sinned, you've fallen short of my glory, the wages of that is death. I, I told you before you ate of the fruit, not only you, but as the confession says, you and all of your posterity. You died, you died in Adam. Spiritually, all mankind died, but God promised to rescue. So the main thing for us to see is that God's plan of rescue through covenant faithfulness 
continued on. He made a promise to Eve, and it continued on through chosen people to Abraham, where the promise was more completely made. The covenant was more formally and fully made, and it carries on. Sometimes it would continue on quietly, and sometimes loudly and miraculously. But no matter what, Grace, hear this. This is, again, how we can sing, isn't he good in the midst of trial? No matter what things looked like on the outside, God's faithfulness could not, would not, and will not be stopped. Where he has made a promise, it will be true. It is the same as if it were already true, even if it's a promise for the future. And that is really good news for you and me as well. Joseph's hope is our hope. What is it? We know more fully than he did. But the hope is the same, that God would remain true to his promise to rescue a people for himself. That God was perfectly faithful to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and now as we'll see Joseph, that he was perfectly faithful to the covenant promises he made with them, gives us full assurance, every assurance that he will continue to be faithful to the new covenant that he has made with you and with me through the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Let's pray that God would help us to trust even more fully in his promises to us today in light of his perfect faithfulness, which we continue to read about back then. So once again, God, we we come before you now knowing full well that if you are not pleased to do so, we'll check out, like Matt Matt said, our brains can check out, we're we're, we're body and spirit. You've made us as, as two-part beings, some, some physical and some spiritual. One or both will check out apart from your grace. Even if we're checked in, we won't understand apart from your grace. Even if we understand, we won't love it apart from your grace. And even if we love it, we won't do it apart from your grace. And so we know now as ever that we need you. We need you for all things, and our hope is your promises, but you've given them to us. You've given them to us to be with us, that whenever two or more are gathered, you are right there with us, and you're with us now, and not only with us, but we have an advocate seated at your right hand, and our Lord Jesus. And not only that, but we have your spirit dwelling in us to remind us and interpret and illuminate for us. We have those as promises, and so we lay claim to them now asking that you would do in us all that you mean to. Which we already know, according to your promises, exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we could ask for or imagine, even if it remains hidden from us for some time. So we rest in those promises. We trust in those now as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we were inter- Introduced, we're in chapter 37. We are introduced to Joseph near the end of chapter 35. If you were here, if you've read it, you might remember, tragically, we were introduced as he was being born and his mother Rachel died giving birth to him. He was Jacob's 12th son and his last son. 17 years had passed since he was born from that passage to this one. We're reintroduced to him now as a teenager working among the animals with his brothers. And it says explicitly the brothers from his his <laughs> father's wives' servants. Uh, so Leah and Rachel's servants. It says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. 
He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, that is, the servants of Rachel and Leah. After this brief description, that's sort of the scene. It's setting the scene for us. What's, what's going on out in the fields? Some of his brothers, he had 11 brothers. He was with just a few of them out in the fields tending the flocks. After that brief giving of the backdrop, things take a bad turn. Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, on top of that, Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because, it tells us why, he was the son of his old age, and therefore he made him a coat of many colors. Technicolor dream coat. In a family environment that had as many built-in challenges as this one did, 12 sons from four women, two wives and two servants with a favorite wife and a favorite son. That's a lot of built-in challenges. With a family environment as, as intrinsically troubled as this one, it probably didn't take much for problems to surface. And yet there's two things here. I imagine you saw them in verses 2 and 3 that would have strained even the most stable family. First, the text tells us that Joseph told his father that his co-shepherd half-brothers were doing something wrong. You'll notice something. We aren't told exactly what they did wrong or what Joseph claimed they did wrong, and we're not even told for certain in the text whether or not he was telling the truth. We're only told that he gave a bad report of them to Jacob. With that, whether he was telling the truth or not, unless his brothers were among the humblest around, which we find out quickly they weren't, this wasn't likely to do anything to raise their esteem for Joseph, which we find out quickly that it didn't. So that's the first thing that would challenge even the most well-intact family. Second, because Joseph was from Rachel, the text tells us, the favorite wife, and his last child, Jacob loved him more than the rest of his sons. What's more, consequently, he showed him many kinds of favoritism, even as he had his mother. It's, a, it's, it's strange, though, isn't it? Do you remember back, again, I, I hope you've been with us, but if you haven't, do you remember back to the beginning of his own life, to Jacob's life? Do you remember how much strife was caused to the, uh, as a result of the favoritism his father and mother showed to their sons? Do you remember that? Just how much turmoil that caused within their family? It, it's strange that Jacob would turn back to that him, himself. But he did. Again, because of that, it would take a special kind of humility for this by itself not to light a fuse of conflict. And again, the brothers didn't have that humility, and therefore it did light a fuse. Look at verse 4. When the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. It's perhaps understandable that they hated him for telling on them. (laughs) Nobody likes that, at least most of us don't. But it's somewhat strange that they were angry with Joseph for their father's favoritism. In other words, it makes sense, sort of, that they were upset that Joseph told on them, but why would they be angry with Joseph that their father chose to show favoritism? It's, It's strange that Jacob gave into this. It's it's strange that they responded this way, but strange or not, the reality is that plays out in pretty dramatic ways in the coming chapters. The reality is that it was 11 to 1 among the brothers, among Jacob's sons. 
We're left wondering what this would lead to. How would the 11 take out their hatred on the one? If, when, what would it look like? It seems clear that something was brewing. We don't yet know what, but it doesn't seem good. In fact, as we're about to find in the next two scenes, even in this chapter, as bad as it was already, it's about to get worse. There's four brothers that he told on that saw right away their father's favoritism. The other seven are about to join them as well. Well, here's the thing. I I want you to ask yourself two questions. This text raises these questions for us. Are you ever, Grace Church, are you ever more upset about getting your sin found out than you are about the sin itself? Are you ever more upset that someone would see the sin in you and call you on it than you are about the sin itself? And here's a second question I think the text raises. Have you ever felt jealousy towards someone because they appeared to be more blessed than you? I want to unpack those questions just a little bit. The textual indications are that Joseph's brothers had in fact done wrong, even though it doesn't say it explicitly here. Everything we know about Joseph and his brothers going forward indicates that they had done wrong and that it was right for Joseph to tell their father about it. Now, there's a right way in which we can read ourselves into Joseph in this story, and and I'm going to invite you to do that later in a different way. But there's a right way we can read ourselves as Joseph doing the right thing and getting and getting smashed for it. There is. But I think probably for most of us, it's better to read ourselves and his brothers, Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher, the ones he told on, because of how prone we still are to wander into sin. What do I mean by that? Are you ever more upset about getting your sin found out than about the sin itself? Here's a couple, here's a couple uh, diagnostic questions to ask with that. Do you ever spend more time upset that someone would accuse you of something than you do prayerfully considering whether or not there's any truth in it? That's kind of a cutting question, isn't it? How about this one? This is the one that's maybe even more cutting. If a person who calls you out, it is a person who calls you out on sin, more likely to leave the encounter with you feeling beat up or built up by you? Are they more likely to, to leave the encounter with you feeling emotionally blasted by you for thinking such a thing and your defensiveness and excuse making? Or are they more likely to feel built up by you in your gratitude? <laughs> you care more about walking in righteousness than your comfort or your reputation. Grace, I I want to challenge you to consider carefully what I'm about to say. The plain teaching of the Bible is that we ought to make it as easy as possible for our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially members of our church, to come to us when they suspect even a hint of sin. And what I mean by that is plant flowers and put some music and hire a a violinist. That's what you say, right? A violinist? You hire a violinist and have soothing music and write them thank you notes and give them candy if they come to you with even that they suspect a hint of sin in you. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. Consider the words. I'm going to give you just a few proverbs in this regard. The first one is the best. You're stupid if you don't. It says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof 
Reproof, meaning someone coming to you, correcting you, or attempting to correct you in your sin. But he who hates reproof is stupid. Don't be stupid. I could have called the sermon that. Proverbs thirteen eighteen. Poverty and disgrace come to those who ignore instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. So that's the other way around it. If you don't heed it, you're stupid. If you do heed it, you're honored. Proverbs fifteen five says, A fool despises his father's instruction. Right, right, kids? But whoever heeds reproof is prudent. You're stupid if you don't. You're honored and prudent if you do. Proverbs 15.32, whoever ignores instruction hates himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. If you want some New Testament passages, Galatians 6.1, 1 Timothy 5.20, Matthew 18.15, James 5.19, Luke 17.3, Hebrews 12.11, and I could go on. The clear teaching of the Bible is that we need to roll out the, the welcome wagon for any who would love us enough to come to us and help us to see sin in our lives. And so let's pray. Give yourself to praying that anyone who comes to you, let's pray that anyone who comes to us in this way, let's pray that they would do so carefully. Let's pray that they would do so graciously. Let's pray that they would do so humbly. Let's pray that they would do so kindly. But let's pray that they would do so. And let's pray that they would do so because we make it easy for them. Let's work toward making them glad that even if, even if they don't do it perfectly in either their approach, if they're not perfect in their approach or their assessment, maybe they're not even right. Maybe they're wrong. But even in helping them to see that, let's make them eager to come back the next time when they might be right. Even if they're not perfect in their delivery or their assessment, Let's make it easy for them to come. Let's ask God to help us again, care more about walking in righteousness and, and the challenging of our brothers and sisters in Christ as a significant means of God's grace for us to do that. Let's pray and ask God to help us care more about walking in righteousness than in comfort. It's not comfortable usually when somebody comes to us that way. But let's care more about walking in righteousness than comfort. Likewise, since our Lord commands us to love he commands us to love. He, he commands us to love, which compels us to go. Let us be a people who are willing to go to one another, even if it means an unpleasant experience. If you are a member, part of becoming a member is a declaration that you want that. And part of voting people into membership is a promise that you will do that. So let's be a people who go. Let's be slow to criticize Let's be quick to encourage. Let's make sure the bulk of the words that come out of our mouths are encouraging and and not rebuking. Let's work hard to avoid vengeance and put on compassion. But let's also cast aside every fear of man and truly love one another by saying hard things when necessary. That's a lot. Let's pray for these things. Well, likewise, where we might be inclined to imagine ourselves is Joseph in another way enduring hardship simply for having received some blessing from God that we didn't even really ask for? It's probably best again to think of ourselves, to ask ourselves the questions the four brothers should have asked themselves. Why am I feeling jealous? Why am I feeling hatred? Is it really because God has chosen to bless someone in a different way than me? 
Have you ever felt jealousy towards someone because they appeared to be more blessed than you? To do so is to sin in at least two ways. First, it is sin to covet what someone else has. And second, it is sin to forget the Lord's promise that whatever measure of grace that God gives, whatever measure of grace God gives, and whatever measure of visibility that grace has in the moment, it is what's best for you. You get that? Does that make sense, Grace? And so when you see somebody else being blessed in a way that maybe maybe it's even right to long for that kind of blessing, it turns to sin when it turns to jealousy and mistrust that God is giving you exactly the grace in exactly the right form and in exactly the right visibility or transparency that you need now. It is what's best for you. Therefore, let us be reminded from this text to rejoice in the blessing of others and be content with our own. All right, well, that brings us to the dreams then. With all that as the backdrop, the next two scenes only add fuel to the fire of these brothers who rejected the two principles that I just tried to point out to you. Make it easy for some, someone to come to you if they suspect you of sin and be glad at the blessings of others, even as you're content in your own. The, the, the brothers refused to do that, and so these two dreams only added fuel to the fire. Look at five. I want to read the first dream again. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around, your sheaves gathered around, And it bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. There's nothing subtle about this. There's nothing subtle about the meaning of the dream or the brother's response. It's, again, the fact that everyone knew what the dream meant was made perfectly clear by the brother's response to it. Their increased anger. This This story gives no indication that Joseph interpreted the dreams for them. It's just we see that everyone knew what they meant. Joseph, the last born, was the favorite son, the one with an added measure of his father's love and a special coat. He went to his brothers to tell them that according to his dream, they would bow down to him and serve him. As of yet, we don't know whether this was God-given a God-given vision or just an ordinary, meaningless dream? We, we don't know that yet, but we know what Joseph and his brothers thought it meant. For that reason, and relaying the dream to his brothers, it's, it's hard to tell if he was really naive or really courageous. Was he truly so oblivious to their hatred and jealousy that it didn't occur to him that this might not be the best idea? Or was he so certain it was from God that he didn't care? Either way, as We'll see as we move through it, the next few chapters, telling them about this dream uh, didn't, didn't end all that well for them in the short term. It only served to amplify their disdain and, and willingness and commitment to doing him harm. That's the first dream. Here's the second. Without any transition, we don't know whether this was the next night or the next week or the next year, there was a second dream. We don't, again, we, all we know is that he had one and that he couldn't keep it to himself again. 
There's no indication God told him, commanded him to tell his brothers. He just felt like, man, that's a good idea. Again, notice we're not told whether this was from God yet. There's no indication that he told them what it meant again either, but it is clear they all understood. Verse 9, he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers as well. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And the brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept this in mind. Once again, the meaning is clear and it's incendiary. It's, It's lighting more stuff on fire. Joseph would rule his entire family and they didn't like it. The only difference between these two dreams other than the symbols used is that in the second dream, the parents were included. Not only his brothers, but his parents would bow down to him. His brothers grew more jealous. His father rebuked him, but he's also pictured as more measured and thoughtful. He kept these sayings in mind. It's it's clear he wasn't sure exactly what to make of this. And surely he, who had been given dreams by God himself, Jacob, knew better than anyone that God was capable of this and more. Well, the fact that they're basically the same dream is generally understood to suggest that it was certain. Joseph would interpret Pharaoh's dreams just a few chapters later. Pharaoh had two of almost the same dreams as well, and here's what Joseph said. The doubling of your dreams, of Pharaoh's dreams, means that the thing is fixed, and God will shortly bring it about. Therefore, what was in their minds already through their father favoring Joseph and giving him a special coat, was here reiterated through a dream. Joseph was above his brothers in some fashion. Once again, it seems that a lack of remembering their family history, <laughs> it was just a big problem they, keep, they kept having. They just kept forgetting the past, even, even in their father's life and grandfather's and great-grandfather's life. The line of blessing had, for the previous two generations, gone to the youngest as well. Their great-grandfather, these brothers, these 11 brothers are pulling their hair out. They're jealous and they're angry and they're mad that the youngest might be exalted above them. But their great-grandfather, Abraham, at God's insistence, chose the youngest as well, and Isaac. Their grandfather, Isaac, chose the youngest as well, and Jacob. And yet it seems that these 11 brothers forgot or didn't care they, or they expected a different result from their heavenly and earthly fathers. So herein is also a reminder that the object of God's choice, being the object of God's choice for whatever, for whatever trial, for whatever difficulty, for whatever mission or purpose, being God's choice, is the path to ultimate blessing for sure. But it is also often the path to increased hardship in the short term. I told you before, maybe it's best to picture yourselves in Jacob's or Joseph's brothers rather than Joseph, but here picture yourself in Jacob's or in Joseph's. We are to be faithful to God regardless of the response of others to our faithfulness. By God's grace, this passage puts both this principle on display, and gives us a reason to accept it. Why would you do that? Why would you choose to to believe God 
when it comes with the promise that it'll make your life harder. <laughs> Why would you do that? Who in their right mind would choose a life that was harder, in the, at least in the short term? And I'll tell you the kind of person that would do that. The kind of person that knows there are bigger promises of God that will certainly come true. How do we know that, though? How do we, how do we know? I'll tell you. That God spoke through dreams adds yet another item to the list of things that God is sovereign over. Kids, I've got a great assignment for you. Many of you are already done with school for the summer, or if not, you're going to be soon. Adults, you should do this too. But here's a great assignment. Go back through Genesis. We're on 37 chapters. You can read it easily in an afternoon and do this in an afternoon. Go back through Genesis to to what we've already covered, and begin to make a list of everything that it shows or says that God is sovereign over, in control of, in charge of. Make a list of everything that it says God shows or says that God is in control of or in charge of. I I think that would be an excellent exercise, and it'll pay dividends as we move forward through the rest of Genesis as well. As our list grows, so too our confidence in God's ability to perfectly keep his promises. In other words, if God says, hey, I'm going to bring you some Gatorade, that's kind of cool. When you're you're most thirsty, I'm going to bring you some Gatorade. But what if God has no ability to get Gatorade? Well, that's a problem, right? In other words, God can make huge, great promises, but what if he's not in charge enough to fulfill them? I think as you do this, as you make this list of the things God has said to be in charge of throughout Genesis and throughout the Bible, as that list grows and grows and grows, so too will your confidence that he will keep every one of his promises, not only wants to, but is able to. I love that. It is because God is consistently described not only as the creator of all, but as the sovereign ruler of all that he has created, that we are right to trust, not partially or mostly or mainly, but wholly and entirely and fully in him, even if others hate us for it and mean to do us harm. All right, before I get to my conclusion, I'm almost there. Before I get to my conclusion, let me ask you one more question that this text raises. And I hope you're thinking about, especially if you come from a certain background, how do we know if a dream is a revelation from God or bad pizza? How do you know that? And even if you know your dream is from God, how do you know what it means if it comes in symbols rather than straightforward commands? How do you know about the stars and the sun and the moon and the bowing and the sheaves and all that? How, how would you know what they meant if, they, if it came in symbolic terms like that? Well, Joseph knew because God had given him a special gift, and that special gift becomes critical going forward through the rest of Genesis. It'll play a bigger and bigger role in the chapters to come. But how do we know, or how would we know? The answer, there's two things we need to understand. First, this gift was a rare gift, even in biblical times. In the several thousand years covered in the Bible, very few overall were given this gift. Grace, hear this. It was never the normal experience of the people of God to be given revelation through dreams. It was never the normal experience. It did happen, and it still happens. Joel 2.18, or Joel 2.28, Acts 2.17, talk about good ways that it happens. Jude 8 tells about bad ways that it happens. It will still happen, but it was never meant to be common or expected. 
That's the first thing to understand. Here's the second. We need to under, the second thing we need to understand is that we are in a unique position in redemptive history. We are not in the same place as the people were in biblical times. Among the differences is the fact that we have the completed canon of Scripture, the whole Bible, as our ultimate authority. In simplest terms, that means that God may give you a dream, but you can only know that the dream is from God if it is consistent with his word. I dreamt once the most vivid dream I've ever had. I was falling out of a skyscraper, and the first, I knew I was going to die. The first half of the way down, I was terrified. This is my dream. And then right at the midway point, all of a sudden I realized this means I get to be with Jesus. And I was so happy. I mean, I, I just can't even describe the joy that came over me. And then I woke up like that and I was upset. <laughs> I was truly upset that I had woken up because I realized it wasn't true, at least not in that moment. Well, was that from God? Was that the pizza? Was that just who knows what? Well, God gives us his word today to understand. If you, if you dream, for instance, that you should share the gospel with your neighbor, you should. <laughs> you ought to. But not ultimately because of the dream, but because it's a clear command of God in the Bible. Maybe God would use a dream to spur you on to do that. But the dream is not your authority. The, the, the word of God is. Conversely, if you dream that you should go and steal from your neighbor and, and take, take his money, You ought not to do that because the Bible clearly forbids that. God is still the God of dreams. He's still sovereign over all, including dreams. But his word, not our dreams, are our ultimate authority. There's more to be said on that. That's not all, but there's not less. So let me me wrap it up here. Both Jacob and God were with Joseph in a special way. Both Jacob, his father, and God, his heavenly father, were with him in a special way. Jacob's favoritism led to turmoil. Well, so did God's. (laughs) But God's also led to the beginning of the next level of covenant fulfillment. Unless unless you've already read further into Genesis, you're wondering where all of this favoritism and jealousy and dreaming will go. You'll have to wait to find that out. I'll tell you that in the coming weeks and months. You'll have to wait to find out where it ended up in Joseph's story. But I want to close with a brief reminder of where it ends up in the greatest story, the bigger story inside which this exists. One day, Grace, many years after the events that we just looked at, another son of Jacob would be born. He too would be, the, would be favored by his father. He too would be the first among his brothers. He too would be hated by his own as a result He too would be given a special garment to put on, and he too would be handed over to his enemies in order to rescue his people. Remember, Grace, Joseph's story only finds its full meaning within the larger story of which it is a part. That larger story is the story of God saving his people ultimately through his one and only son, Jesus. In many ways, the main point of the story of Joseph and of the Old Testament as a whole is to create for us categories, the categories we need to make sense of how Jesus saved us and what he saved us from. Let me say that again. I've been talking for a while, so maybe you're not with me, but let me say that again. The main point of the Joseph story in many ways and of the Old Testament as a whole is to create the categories that you and I need, the people of God today need 
to make sense of how Jesus saved us and what he saved us from. To rightly read the story, then, we need to read it with Jesus in mind. And all of that brings us now to the Lord's Supper, to communion. It, too, can only be fully understood in light of the categories introduced in the Old Testament. Do you know this? The Old Testament is not something that is that we're done with, that we've moved on from, that we no longer need, that's for the past, that's for Jews only. Hear this grace. The only way we can make full sense of what we're about to do is with the full revelation of God. Joseph and his brothers would become the tribes of Israel. Not too long after, not too long in the future of the story we just read, these tribes would become slaves in Egypt. And many, many, after many, many years of slavery, God would miraculously rescue them by unleashing a series of plagues on the Egyptians, culminating in the killing of every firstborn in Egypt. Well, in order to avoid this fate, God instructed the Israelites to prepare a special meal and to put the blood of a lamb above the door to their homes. Wherever God found these things, he passed over that home and the firstborn in it. Well, as you can imagine, this was a source of great terror and horror for the Egyptians, but a source of great amazement and wonder for Jacob's children. God instructed them to continue eating this special meal. It became known as the Passover meal. Well, centuries later, then again, when Jesus came to earth, God's people were still celebrating the Passover. And it was at that meal that Jesus explained the full meaning and gave to us, the church today, what we call communion. Again, so far from an outdated cast-off, the Old Testament is an essential treasure trove for us. It is filled with awesome descriptions of God's power and glory, his promises made and kept, his will, his saving work. In the background, we need to make sense of his commands and promises today, including this meal that we're about to take part in. So let's thank God for his amazing grace, even now as we turn to one particular form that his amazing grace takes.